Affection lives with humble undress, private things, soft slippers, old clothes, old jokes, the thump of a sleepy dog's tail on the kitchen floor, the sound of a sewing machine, a child's toy left on the lawn. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 6. The Four Loves, Chapter 3, Affection, Part 1. Well, good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we're talking about love, slowly, deliberately working our way through the four loves by C.S. Lewis, the book he writes about affection, friendship, romance, and charity. So, friends, how was your Thanksgiving? I'm still recovering. <laughs> I had to uh, I had to pick myself up off the bed uh, from my food comatose just to be able to record this. Uh, but I'm happy to report that I'm four pounds heavier. <laughs> and no, and you know what? I only have to buy half as many Christmas gifts this year because I made sure we brought up the political conversations, and so I am <laughs> also wealthier. So this is it was a fantastic Thanksgiving. Always a money saver. Always a money saver. Mm. I I, I want to say it was someone in the Slack channel that put that quote up or something. It was wonderful inspiration. Somehow I saw it through somewhere and I was like, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, that's great. How about you, David? Well, we had lots of family for Thanksgiving this year. We had my sister-in-law visiting from the University of Dallas. And I also had my parents-in-law staying here over the course of Thanksgiving so that all of the family could be geographically close to one another. And I also found out that another of my brothers-in-law We'll be moving to Wisconsin before the end of the year. Wow. Wow. So you're filling it yeah, all up. Exactly. Did, did someone just decide to be the first one and it just took root and everyone goes, <laughs> you know what? We will slowly follow suit and the dominoes fell down and now you're all there? Pretty much. Well, you see, seven, somebody got kidnapped and then there were seven <laughs> years of drought. <laughs> yeah. Marie's Touché. brother, Andrew, he married a girl from this part of the world. And so he moved here and then they started having kids and pretty much California has been going crazy and getting more and more expensive. And so there have been various talks about people moving. And then when the house next door went on sale, Marie and I could jump on it. And so we did. And one by one, everybody else is joining us. Mm-hmm. Well, I had Thanksgiving here in Florida with my wife's family and I just love them all except my nephew who's behind <laughs> me doing homework. No, he's the one I love best. Um, but we had tons of family over. I think there were 33 people around the several Thanksgiving tables. Went over to mom and dad's after church today and got a got a had a plate of leftovers and brought even more leftovers um, home. So that's been um, that's been great to be around them. We fly home tomorrow, and so we're recording this, listeners, on the Sunday before Lewis's birthday on the 28th. And so by the time you hear this, I will be back from the Camp Allen retreat. Um, in fact, a week from today, uh, we'll meet with our engineer for lunch after after our glorious C.S. Lewis Foundation retreat. So that's, um, and then I'm just working away at, uh, I'm finishing up a paper on Lewis and autobiography that will come out um, in a journal called Perichoresis. Um, and as uh, you all know by now, I've been listing books on my eBay. I'm listing a book a day and have some pretty nice things going up. So that's been fun to see all the interest and the ooing and aahing. <laughs> so it's a joy for me. So you too can be like Andrew and have lots of first editions. <laughs> yes, or just the one that you need. I'm going to try. Um, I, I meant to post them uh, earlier in November, but I want folks to be able to maybe get them for a, some, a special someone started posting them on Black Friday, and I want to get them up one a day. I'm putting priority mail as an option because last year I sold some things on media and sent some things on media mail that didn't arrive in time. Um, so, But I want them to be able to get into the hands of folks, and I have been gathering some some nice things. So listeners, I showed David and Matt before, um, uh, right before we started, a beautiful first edition of Mere Christianity and a British first edition of Till We Have Faces. And I've got a number of screw tapes. And so it's just fun to see the pictures go out and see people appreciate and love those books. And um, that's that's at least half the enjoyment for me. I love it. Well, so what's everybody drinking today? Well, I'm drinking one of the scotches that Matt sent me. It's Glendronach Original. 
12 year. And this one doesn't actually smell like methylated spirits. So I'm rather hopeful. <laughs> More importantly, though, how does it taste? Yeah. Because I'm like 0 for 6 with these right now. It's very peppery. Okay. But I want to make it very clear. Better than the last one. These were purchased in England. So <laughs> Absolutely. I don't really think this is my fault. I think this is England's fault. Maybe they were fobbing off on the locals, the good, the, the bad stuff, you know, saving the bad wine until the end and sending the good stuff over to the colonies. <laughs> I'm just drinking water. Today was the first day I woke up where this cold has actually passed, or I feel 90%. It was lingering all throughout the holidays. And so, I mean, I just, I'm not going to describe it. You guys don't need to know the details, but it was a man flu. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm just very glad to just be almost recovered and I'm hoping to wake up tomorrow beautiful. Well, I do hope you're feeling better. Uh, set a prayer for you, you. It was a negative COVID test. I made sure I did that for the holiday. So That's at least good. it wasn't that. It was much worse. The man flu. I'm drinking... The man flu. Yeah, let's hope that's not a new variant. <laughs> <laughs> or the mat flu. So um, I'm drinking one that Matt sent me, Glenn Alachi, uh, 15-year-old. And it says that the nose is peanut brittle, dates, and a big scoop of chocolate ice cream, which sounds kind of revolting <laughs> if you have them all at the same time. But the palate is walnut, raisin, Christmas spices, and fresh ginger. But here's what I love. The finish is coffee, just a hint of flaky sea salt. And Turkish delight. It really <laughs> says that. It oh says it right I mean, there. Actually, never, let me rephrase. I knew that. It's my bought it for you, Andrew. <laughs> yes. Oh, you're so Come thoughtful. <laughs> well, if you have any impulses Great. to betray your family, please resist them. <laughs> yes, I I shall. I shall. Let's. Uh, well, and Edmund, after the Turkish delight, turns out to be the best of the lot. So let's hope that that's 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 a fate for me. Well, together today, we're going to be toasting Gold Level supporter Christine Foy. So, Christine, we raise our glass to you on the first day of Advent and pray that uh, that God comes close to you and Christ is especially near to you in this Advent season. Cheers. 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 I thought about saying, may all your affections turn into the deepest of appreciative loves. You're around family. May none of loves be like demons to you. <laughs> Or may you stay far, far away from Mrs. Fidget. Yes, absolutely. All right. So where have we been and where are we going, Yes, David? two chapters down, four more to go. So this is what we've learned so far. In the first chapter, we learned about need love and gift love, nearness by likeness and nearness of approach. And it was also there that we heard the maxim of this book, that love, when it becomes a god, ceases to even be a love and instead becomes a demon. Then in the second chapter, we considered pleasures, dividing them up into need pleasures and appreciative pleasures, and we inadvertently discovered a new kind of love. While need pleasures foreshadow need loves, appreciative pleasures foreshadow appreciative love. And incidentally, listener Abby shared on the Slack channel this great quotation from The Way of Philosophy, which describes something of the power of appreciative love. It said, We do not stop and smell the roses. But instead, the roses stop us. You know, I think that that's especially appropriate given the uh, given Lewis's approach to naps. Uh, he was famed for saying, "I never take a nap, but sometimes, mind you, a nap takes me." <laughs> I love that quote. <laughs> he called it a visit to the fourth dimension. <laughs> So, enough of that. What else? Well, we then considered love towards two entities which aren't human. We first of all considered the love of nature, and we saw how nature isn't a teacher, but she can be used to give meaning to the words that we use about God. And the second subhuman love we discussed was love of country, and that was last week. And Lewis dissected the different elements of patriotism, love of home, the attitude towards our history, superiority over other nations, as well as rights and responsibilities towards other countries. And we heard about the dangers of grounding one's patriotism in one's country's merits, as well as the problems which follow if we attempt to dispense with patriotism altogether. So as we do these recaps each week, I, I'm trying to compress the earlier material, so we say less and less, so it's, it just reorients us, but at the same time that we still see the trajectory of uh, Lewis's argument and, and the direction he's taking us in 
in this book. Uh, but anything to add before we begin chapter three? No, bravo, my friend. I actually noticed you doing that. I'm like, oh, look at it, succinct, succinct, succinct. And I was like, ah, oh, he's expanding on the last chapter a little bit more. Well played. Absolutely. No, and I love the distinction that we can't either dispense with patriotism nor depend too much on it. And um, although I, these chapters are always a, a kind of a rough slog for me, I think that it's really good to get me mentally into shape for what we're about to discuss. <laughs> yeah, I would second that. Just just a little note for listeners. I mean, if, if the book, they're a little bit of a slog for myself as well, but I think they're really important to set this up. And so don't let this be like, okay, is every chapter like this? Uh, I'm so excited as we jump into affection and now dive into the, the main contents of this. Well, and grappling with Lewis and failing to understand is uh, sometimes better intellectual training for me than just about anything else. Well, the fact that God wrestled with Jacob shows that he likes wrestling an awful lot. Well, and Lewis also said, and that's part of why I like the way that we can kind of question Lewis. And I mean, I'm the biggest Lewis apologist and defender that I know. Um, but Lewis said to find an opponent in intellectual and literary things is almost to find a friend. Um, and so I think that we honor him by engaging with him as best we can. You know, we love Lewis, but um, we don't always understand and we don't always agree. But that's how the Inklings were. They said that they they went at it hammer and tongs um, when they got together. And so I wish I could have sat in on those good fights, but we'll have to suffice with this. <laughs> well, we're going to be reading chapter three over the course of three weeks. And here's my 100 word summary for the first part. Lewis defines affection as the love between parents and their children. However, due to its indiscriminate nature, many objects may be loved with affection. The main criterion is that the object must be familiar. Because of this familiarity, it is a love which grows unnoticed. It is also a love which can exist between those of different age, class, education, and even species. Although not an appreciative love, it creates a space to appreciate the objects of love in a new way. Finally, affection can exist either on its own or as a support to the other loves. Perfect. I can't wait to dive in. I've been looking forward to this chapter for a while. So let's discuss today's text. Yeah. Today we begin the first of the big four of the four loves. Lewis actually gives many different kinds of loves, but this is the first one that's referred to in the title. And he says that he begins with the humblest and most widely diffused of loves, affection. And in comparison to the other loves, our experience of this love, he says it's most similar to that of the animals. However, he's very quick to point out that this doesn't mean that it's automatically of a lower value. He says nothing in man is either worse or better for being shared with the beasts. And this is consistent with what he's written elsewhere and what we read about in mere Christianity. You know, humans are rational animals. We are actually animals. But when someone is being brutish, what's actually happening is they're failing to live up to the rational part of their nature, and very often being far more cruel than any animals would ever be. Lewis lived with dogs and cats, and so he was very familiar with the animal nature. This is a good, uh, a good distinction to make. It, as I was rereading this chapter, I have listened to the audio so often that I can start to hear where Lewis has filled in things. So that's an interesting study if anybody really wants to dive deep, is to take your chapter of um, – and and the, the audiobook doesn't have the first two chapters, so it just has the three naturals and the one divine love. So if anybody really wants to go deep, um, worth taking the, the book side by side with the audio and seeing what Lewis filled in. Fascinating study. So Jack notes that in Greek, this love is called storgi. And I'm definitely going to have more to say about Jack's use of Greek later in this book. But for now, let's look at how he develops a definition. He says that his Greek lexicon describes storgi as affection which parents have towards their offspring. And then Lewis widens this definition to make it mutual, including the affection of the offspring towards their parents. And Lewis tells us that when we think of affection, these are the sorts of images which we should have in our minds. A mother nursing a baby, a bitch or a cat with a basket full of puppies or kittens, all in their squeaking, nuzzling heap together, purrings, lickings, baby talk, milk, warmth, the smell of young life. And as a father of a two-month-old, this sort of scene is particularly <laughs> familiar to me. And, and Lewis says that from this image, we see that need love and gift love are elements of affection. The need and the need love of 
the young, the, the child, the kitten, is really obvious, uh, as is the gift love of the mother. However, he then notes something of a paradox, something which we've actually hinted at in previous episodes. He says, the mother gives birth, gives suck, gives protection. On the other hand, she must give birth or die. She must give suck or suffer. That way, her affection too is a need love. There is the paradox. It is a need love, but what it needs is to give. It is a gift love, but what it needs is to be needed. Gentlemen, thoughts? Sounds like uh, something uh, a wise person on the show uh, speculated on maybe a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, yes, Andrew, you were spot on. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost as if I had read the book before. <laughs> no, I. This was this was really that working hypothesis. I felt like you. I mentioned that you couldn't. It seemed like you can't have one without the other, and I don't know. This isn't necessarily going that far, but this seems to be connecting these two more in the way that I I started to see them connected early on. Of just a need love can honestly be seen somewhat as a gift love when you allow yourself to be vulnerable to another person uh, in in the, the right sense, not in the truly uh, needy sense of the word, but just allowing yourself. You're actually that's a gift to another person to allow them to journey with you, and vice versa. And when you're giving. It's, there is a, there's something you are sort of receiving and it doesn't mean it in a selfish sense, but we all do need and desire to be helpful to other people. Uh, and we desire, mm. we desire to love people and we desire to be loved by people. And mm. I think there's, I, I really agree with this statement and it brought things pretty full circle for me, at least on that hypothesis I threw out, I think episode one or maybe two. You know, I was thinking about this love. Um, one of my nephews, uh, has had a, he and his wife have had, um, had a baby and he's a year old now. And he said, boy, the first few months were hard because the baby didn't have any personality. All it was was need. It needed food. It needed sleep. It needed uh, affection. It needed diapers changed. And um, he was wondering if he was going to be a good father. Um, and the first time uh, the little, his, his baby son saw him kind of walk across the room and smiled at him, Everything kind of clicked, and that's affection kind of doing its job. I mean, what he had for the baby um, was pretty much agape, right? Divine love that's all gift, that has no kind of necessarily emotional attachment. Um, but they, I'm happy to say, have have you know kind of nestled down into this into this lovely sort of affection that's that's grown. It's born out of those things, but then you become used to each other. And um, I think that the word familiar, if we think about it as re being related to family, uh, really kind of uh, the, the familiarity of things and the comfort that familiarity brings. Um, I know it can breed contempt, but familiarity can also breed a lot of solid pleasure in life. And on that subject, Alexander has started smiling much more over the last week or two. And he also now recognizes ah. me. So when I poke my head over his bassinet, he, I get a big grin in the morning because that's when he's in his best mood ah. and has the most energy. Aww. Oh, that's good. I was hoping we hear Alexander's stories <laughs> this chapter. He's an introvert. Well, I'm actually planning on interviewing him in the final week of this month, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get on with the text, because next, Lewis extends the definition of Storky far beyond that of just parents and children. And he says that the warmth and comfortableness of affection can be directed towards innumerable other objects. And he says that this can be done because affection isn't a very discriminating love. And he says, there are women for whom we can predict few wooers and men who are likely to have few friends. They have nothing to offer. But almost anyone can become an object of affection. The ugly, the stupid, even the exasperating. There need be no apparent fitness between those whom it unites. It ignores the barriers of age, sex, class, and education. It ignores even the barriers of species. We see it not only between dog and man, but, more surprisingly, between dog and cat. And Lewis gives many examples of affection between unlikely characters in literature. And in the show notes, I'll have details as to who, who each of these are, because I had to look up quite a lot of them. But two of the better known ones are probably Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, the knight and his servant, uh, as well as Mole, Rat, Badger, and Toad from The Wind in the Willows. But guys, what's the key criterion for an object in order to be able to receive this affection? Andrew, you mentioned it earlier. 
Uh, well, I mean, I mentioned familiarity. It's um, I think of it also uh, in terms of uh, feeling a little nostalgia when you hear your high school fight song, even if you didn't have a particularly great experience in 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 high school. Um, I think I got this from Lewis when you. Uh, have a party for a colleague who's leaving the company who you've worked with for years. Even if you don't like that colleague colleague <laughs> at all, there's a sense of, oh, I'm never going to see this person again, right? Um, it's the kind of thing when I teach it, I, I use, I describe, uh, if you've ever, ever been overseas in a country that spoke a language that you didn't speak, and then you heard English spoken, and you race over to the person just to speak your language, and you usually exchange contact information, and you never contact them again. <laughs> it's better, it's great enough that they speak English, better if they are from a place that you know, better still from the same neighborhood or the same clan, and that's kind of a, how affection works. It's of a different quality as everything else. Um, so I, that's kind of how I, I think about it. It's this familiarity. We didn't choose each other. People in a family or in a country didn't choose each other, but we belong together because it's the kind of thing that develops geographically just to keep us from killing each other sometimes. It's kind of connected with patriotism from last week. You know, it started at the home. This Absolutely. is how it joined together. Yeah, I was thinking about my time at Oxford in the sense that it was it was actually one of the toughest times for me, but it was also the time of the most growth for me. And so I have very rosy views from it because I it changed my trajectory of my life in many ways, but it was also like the darkest period of my life. And despite being dark mm. and tough in various moments, I have just a deep affection for the place because after being there for mm. nine months, you develop those certain pubs I went to. And when I went back there... I just had all the rosiest memories, even though if I'm being honest, there were some pretty dark memories there, but just to go sit in the pubs, to have, I literally just repeated the stuff I did. I went to the different gardens and read books and the locations that I went to just because I was yes. looking for the familiar. And I think probably actually coming out of a pandemic, I was craving the familiar a little bit more <laughs> than anything mm -hmm. too. And I moved to this new town and everything. And so I just, it felt really great to be back there. And you're pointing out something that Lewis says, that we don't notice our affection growing. To notice that you have affection for something means that it's already been growing for a while. And the examples he gives are that of a child's attitude towards an old gardener, um, or a, a mm -hmm. dog meeting new acquaintances who are trying the very best to be friends, uh, but the, the dog is suspicious and growls. Yet the old acquaintance that it's seen day in, day out, that's never paid any attention to it, it's excited. You know, Chesterton talks about the slow maturing of old jokes, you know, and it's not the fact that the jokes are good. It's the fact that we have told them together. It's why we remind each other of memories that are still fresh on our memories with our oldest of friends. That is not so much about the friendship, but the fact that we have traveled this journey together. Matt, if I mentioned Queen's Lane to you... And the medieval sense of Queen's Lane in Oxford, oh, yeah. you know, that past the Bridge of Sighs oh, yeah. and around the corners and, oh my gosh, or that little turn down to the Turf that's, Tavern. That's, I mean, I was in New College, so that's literally right there. I mean, I, yes. my apartment was right around there. One of the things I did last week, they have extended again until I think the 25th, the most reluctant convert, um, the movie showing. But I saw the last showing here in Sarasota. And when he goes into um, Whitehorse... Right there on on Broad Street, uh, right next to um, to Blackwell's, and sits in the sits in the booth with a pint. I have sat in that same oh. booth with a pint, and it's like, oh my gosh! Now Max and I are friends, but that's not about being friends. That's about this familiarity, and it's what Mary Oliver refers to in her poem "Wild Geese." Her, the last line, announcing again and again your place in the family of things. Right, it's a sense of belonging. I think. And that's, I think, why affection can invade so many of the other loves. Mm. This mention of Uncle Toby that he has in this chapter two, I just want to mention briefly. Um, in February 1st, 1931, Lewis writes a letter to Arthur Greaves about two characters in Tristram Shandy, my father and old Toby. And Lewis says, they never understand one another at all, but always love one another. It is the true picture of home life, far better than the modern nonsense in which affection is made to depend on mental affinities. And he distinguishes affection from friendship. So Lewis had the four loves in his mind as a framework as early as 1940 in a letter to Warney. 
But this distinction of between affection and friendship goes back even 10 years earlier. And so Lewis had been thinking about these distinctions. I just find them so tremendously helpful to not demand my high school acquaintances to be friends, that friends are, you know, friends share certain things, but to allow affection to be deep and rich, but also to have its borderlands and to let myself off the hook for um, not making affection you know, familiarity go too far. Now, much like myself, affection is incredibly humble and modest. <laughs> You're the humblest person, at least listeners, that's what David keeps telling <laughs> us. I'm humbler than the rest of you and anyone else I know. <laughs> but he, he says you can be proud of a friendship. You know, I'm friends with so-and-so. Or you can be proud of a romantic attachment. I remember a guy I went to university with, he came in one day and went, I have a girlfriend. I have a girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if he's proud of of his girlfriend or just not being single. (laughs) I think it was was probably both. Uh, But if he's listening, hi, Wiggy. Anyway, uh, but he says that you, you don't have this sort of thing with affection. And he recounts a story. He says, Once when I remarked on the affection quite often found between a cat and a dog, my friend replied, yes, but I bet no dog would ever confess it to the other dogs. (laughs) And it's the same with human affection. It's nothing to brag about. And he says, it's no proof of our refinement or perceptiveness that we love them, nor that they love us. So affection is humble, but Jack also says that there's no appreciative love in affection. We take it for granted. And he says we only tend to notice it when it's gone due to death or Mm -hmm. absence and he says affection would not be affection if it was loudly and frequently expressed affection almost slinks and seeps through our lives it lives with the humble undressed private things soft slippers old clothes old jokes the thump of a sleepy dog's tail on the kitchen floor the sound of a sewing machine a gollywog left on the lawn What's a gollywog, yeah. David? <laughs> yeah, I want, I, I've been asking around as I've been reading this chapter if anyone knew what a gollywog was or is. I had a gollywog. It is a kind of rag doll, and it's come under fire uh, because for being racist because it's a golly, it's a it's a rag doll of somebody that's dark skinned. I absolutely adored my gollywog, but I, I think in I think in the talk Lewis just calls it a child's toy on the lawn, uh, but. Apparently, he had affection for the gollywogs as well. Well, and it's helpful to know, perhaps, that Lewis lived in a family setting. He had a uh, kind of an ersatz sister and an ersatz mother um, for many years. And there was this, and then his brother came and lived with him. And so affection was pretty much the love um, that Lewis. Uh, that Lewis experienced at home. He also, I mean, it wasn't a very pleasant home life in a lot of ways. Um, he experienced a lot of unpleasantness, um, but he had a settled home. And his brother, whose voice he could remember as long as he'd been alive, was in his room uh, every day. And so there's this kind of settledness to it. Um, I, that's why I refer to it as geographical. It, it almost has to do with place and how people in some ways become the mental and emotional furniture for us. We know how they're going to respond. Um, my wife, I have taken her from Sarasota, Florida to first to Texas and now to Virginia. And when we get back here to Sarasota, she's like, I don't have to look up the directions to know how to get somewhere. And it's that kind of familiarity that I think is uh, is a symbol of affection. You know, the thing, David, I was... You can see from everything you were talking about when you were describing affection and and all of the different examples of it, you realize how much affection is like a part of everything. Mm-hmm. It's like the foundation of so much. It's it's humble. It's there. It's present. It it touches so many corners. Whereas it seems like we're from I've read this before a while ago, but you have eros, you have agape, you have friendship, and those are just very defined. They're very clear boundaries and borders. Affection mm-hmm. seems to just creep everywhere. Mm-hmm. What did you make of it, his comments about it being devoid of appreciative love, but sort of creating the space in order to be able to appreciate those objects that you wouldn't have without affection? I love that. That was one of the few. The thing that I try to look for, because we all have, listeners are probably already realizing this pretty quickly. We all have kind of different roles that we're doing here when you start to fall into that with three different people in recording and uh, David, you obviously keep the structure beautifully. I try to figure out like, what's the thing that just jumps out to me? And I love at the end of this chapter, how he talks about as affection grows, 
and I'll slightly be jumping ahead here, but it will answer your question. He says, affection teaches us to first know this, then to endure, then to smile, then to enjoy, and finally to appreciate. I thought that was a really mm-hmm. powerful statement of almost like the grace and gift affection is from God, that it, it almost helps us get to some of the other levels. He almost made it a little bit easier. It's the entry point. Like I made this sort of natural for you guys when you're around someone, even someone you wouldn't normally like, you eventually start to develop affection and then you start to notice some of the peculiarities of them. You start to see those traits and all of a sudden you start to like those traits. And before you know it, you look back and you're like, mm-hmm. huh. And it wouldn't be a tor- a normally an individual or an object or a person or whatever that you would potentially choose as a friendship because maybe it's not the weight you too, but that doesn't mean there's not an appreciation of just their peculiarity. And he had this one specific sentence I really liked where it's, it almost expands your view of you realize they actually might have a little bit different intelligence than you. And that intelligence might not be intelligence you would seek out for a friendship, but you realize, wait, there is other types of intelligence that are beautiful or interests that are beautiful, even if they're not my own. So it really just seemed a powerful tool for bringing humanity together and, and creating empathy and appreciation. I love that. And uh, once again, as I've mentioned before, this is the most important book as an adult that I've ever read because it shows me the boundaries of love and what they're supposed to do and not supposed to do. I don't know that I would wholeheartedly agree with affection as being devoid of appreciative love, Mm -hmm. but I think that affection, that appreciative love cannot and should not be expressed often in affection. I think we save it for times like funerals right? Maybe birthdays, um, weddings, where you give up, get up and give a toast and appreciate who they are for who they are. Um, but too often, I think affection is busy with other things, and rightly so. I also think that I was thinking about this as you were talking about, I was asking myself, what are ways that affection can become a demon? Ooh. And I think one of the ways is if you have friends or family members who say embarrassing things or who are awkward and you look at another family member and you just roll your eyes, but you do it in a kind way, right? You're like, oh boy, there's them being them. <laughs> Somebody who didn't know that person well and who hadn't spent years and seen how those you know, foibles form might be really offended by something that they say. Um, and I'm not... I'm not asking anybody to forgive the truly offensive, um, but those, you know, just those kind of little awkward elbows that we stick out. And um, I think that affection can become a demon if we begin to excuse what's unexcusable instead of just the merely awkward. There are some rudenesses that happen amongst families sometimes or amongst friends. But when my friends, um, kind of do that stupid thing that they do and I roll my eyes at them and then still care for them, I think that that's affection kind of growing along with them. It can go too far. And that's where I think like to say my country right or wrong is an example of affection gone too far. I love and accept my country even though it's got its warts and flaws. But to say that I love my country no matter what happened, no matter what it does, Um, even when it violates God's law, that's maybe affection perhaps becoming a demon. And remember, because it is a love and such a prevalent love and such a common love, Screwtape is always going to want to mess with it and turn love into some kind of uh, twisted thing. And we're going to talk much more about how affection goes wrong. We've actually, it's really just today's episode. We're talking about its wonders. And we're actually going to spend the next two episodes looking at all of the ways that it goes horribly wrong. No, going naturally negative. Well done, Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I was about to actually, I'm not going to now, but I was about to respond because I did actually read all the way to the end of this. I didn't do it detailed, but I wanted to try to wrap my head around it. And I, I could sense, I was like, I think this comment I'm about to make is going to bleed into next week's episode, so I held back. But um, I can't wait for us to talk about that because you, you you teased that really well, Andrew. So listeners, next week. I'm just playing Lewis and enticing readers to continue reading. <laughs> <laughs> this is the cliffhanger of a podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't put this in the notes, but I, I was going to share it anyway. When we talk about uh, what affection does, I lived for a while, over a year, with a guy who was a brony. If you don't know what this is, this is a grown man that watches My Little Pony cartoons and goes to pony conventions. That is a thing. 
it is so weird. But it was so enlightening living with him for a year and seeing him get joy out of this and uh, meeting some of his friends that share this passion with him. I would have never chosen to live with someone like that by choice. You know, if, if there was, say, a, a roommate description, if I had a list and one of them said Brony, I'm not choosing that. However, <laughs> living with it was a broadening experience. And did you no. develop the appreciation? No. No, no, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my sister has married a gearhead. Um, he's a Mopar guy, and he loves cars. And I don't know a thing about cars. I don't know a thing about Mopar. But the way that he loves Mopar is the same way I love Lewis. And so because he's married to my sister, I was open to appreciating and you know, being interested in what he's doing and in looking to find ways to go, this must be a good guy. I think that's part of what affection mm -hmm. does is it broadens our, our acceptance of a wide variety of people who we never have chosen, would have chosen. And that's the sign of affection. We choose our lovers. We choose our friends. We don't choose those with whom we're in a country or a school or, uh, or a family with. Lewis says that affection doesn't always exist by itself. And I actually wondered if this was going to be the quote of the week. But in the most Pints with Jack quotation ever, he says, As gin is not only a drink in itself, but also a base for many mixed drinks, so affection, besides being a love itself, can enter into the other loves and color them all through and become the very medium in which from day to day they operate. Ah, You know why this wasn't a, the quote of the week? Why? Two reasons. That quote, the slow thump of a lazy dog's tail on a warm kitchen floor mm. is is just inescapable. But I don't like gin all that I much. don't either. <laughs> I'm, I don't like the piney flavor. Are you a gin guy, David? I, I like a nice gin and tonic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's a good Sunday right. when you get back from church waiting for dinner to be served kind of drink. If we have any okay. lifelong listeners, they're going to be like, I watched your videos, Matt, from four years ago, and you said maybe a gin and tonic here and there. I used to like it. I, to this day, don't know what happened in the last three or four years, but now oh. I can barely swallow gin. Oh, wow. Well, I hope you are not without affection. <laughs> I have no affection and no appreciation. <laughs> yeah, no appreciative love for this. And nearness of approach doesn't help with gin. With nope. You. It doesn't sound like <laughs> Well, he gives examples of how affection complements friendship and even saves romantic love. Regarding friendship, he explains how when you've been friends with someone for a long time, the things mm -hmm. about them which have nothing to do with your friendship, they become dear by familiarity. You know, it broadens our love mm -hmm. for that person. And regarding erotic love, Lewis says that eros by itself can become either too angelic or too animal or each by turn. And affection, it adds something else that binds it all together. So mm -hmm. in both friendship and romance, there's a charm when he says, the mere ease and ordinariness of the relationship wraps us around. No need to talk, no need to make love, no need at all except perhaps to stir the fire. And pour another gin and tonic, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, some of my closest friendships, they always develop around the weight, what, you two, and you have that similar interest. And mm -hmm. throughout your friendship, you that obviously comes out and frequently. But I, if I look at my very close ones, the percentage of time spent around that wait, what you two actually kind of starts to diminish and you just fit, sit into that affection. The need to even mm -hmm. be forcing anything just goes away. And it's whether you're going out to dinner and you're just enjoying each other's company and you're not talking about big, deep life stuff, or sometimes you're going to talk about big, deep life stuff or whatever your, your shared interest is. It doesn't really matter. Earlier friendships, until that affection develops, you are kind of, they are more targeted around what it originally started with. And so until it broadens, there isn't quite that comfortability yet. Mm -hmm. I remember jumping in the car uh, years ago. I was away at college in Chicago and came back to California for the holidays and was uh, driving around with my best friend, Eddie. We had exactly this conversation. I said, do you think? And he said, nah, not right now. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> there were no nouns. <laughs> and it wasn't about our friendship, but there was just such a long familiarity that had grown up between us that, um, that it almost didn't, didn't demand words. Um, I think that Orwell's problem is that not only did she try to find out what Redival was at all interested in, friendship, right? You know, what uh, friendship is around interests. 
but she didn't even have or, or cultivate storge with with Redival. And um, I, I think that you know if you, you if you think of affection as this kind of permissiveness of awkwardness um, that you develop in those that you like and that you the opposite develops in those that you don't like you know if somebody that i don't like is at all awkward i'm quick to criticize and to, to think to think less of um and uh, that's not true of affection affection kind of keeps us from doing that and, and allows the imperfections uh to come out and that's why he calls it kind of humble undress you're in your your everyday clothes and orwell failed by not having that but of course she failed she didn't have a mother which is the primary source of affection and she didn't have a father who was at all affectionate and so one can understand why she didn't develop a very affectionate relationship um it's worth going back and rereading just about anything by lewis now that we have this framework <laughs> To demonstrate the overlapping and blending of the loves, Jack points to two different things as examples. Mm -hmm. Firstly, affection, friendship, and eros all have an expression in common, the kiss. I mean, we don't typically use that so much for friendship today, at least among guys. Uh, but certainly if you go to the continent, it's still much more common. But Lewis points out that it's not clear who is borrowing from whom. Where does the kiss come from? From, from which of those loves? Uh, and so the fact that they all share it points to some intermingling and sharing of those loves. And he says, you can be sure that the kiss of affection differs from the kiss of Eros, uh, but not all kisses between lovers are lovers' kisses, which is a, mm -hmm. a beautifully poetic phrase that he, he's got in this chapter. One of my favorites. Yeah. And, and, he, and he says, secondly, different loves use a little language or baby talk. And he cites a scientist saying that the same thing happens in the animal kingdom. And in the in the radio addresses, he makes it very clear that that makes him feel awkward <laughs> when 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 people are using baby talk. And I'm definitely cut from the from the same cloth. I don't use baby talk with my son. I might be excitable, but I talk to him like a, a human being. And I, I don't really have any pet names for Marie. She's Marie. So, for what it's worth, <laughs> hold up, hold up, hold up. We gotta we gotta correct one comment here. If you use baby talk, that doesn't mean you're not talking to your loved one, whether a wife or a child, as a human being, Sir David Bates. I want to make sure. I'm uh, guessing there's a lot of people that are listeners who actually do talk. I talk to uh, little kids and baby talk sometimes, and I guess I do use pet names And when I'm in a relationship, and I feel no shame around it. I've watched enough episodes of Vera, <laughs> the British uh, detective, and she calls everybody pet and love. Pop it. And, and <laughs> one of Pop my it. favorite yeah, memories exactly. was my Oxford professor. I'm having pints with him, and uh, he, he calls you Pop it. You should report <laughs> that. <laughs> well, his daughter, his daughter <laughs> picks up, and he's like, "Hello, love," and he just talks in the most tender voice I've ever heard and just had the pet name with her. And I just was like, this guy is an incredible father. I could just tell with the way he communicated with her. And it was just so beautiful. Um, and this guy's like the most intellectual scholar I think I've ever met on the money and banking industry, but fantastic person. Uh, I'm not against not talking. I just want to make sure we don't downgrade just, neither, neither Neither am I. I'm just saying that whatever is baked into Lewis that made him feel kind of uncomfortable with that, yeah, it's in me as well. I think it's <laughs> being educated in England. Uh, or a, a fear I'm of vulnerability. So sure. I'm not quite sure there. Well, and I'm pretty sure that part of it was um, the fact that he wasn't around many babies, mm -hmm. right? Um, there, were, there were not a lot of babies in Lewis's experience. Well, now I feel a little bit judged. Let's talk about the final section. <laughs> <laughs> no, to each his own, to each his own. You're welcome. <laughs> well, and, and no, I, I think that especially to talk at – to doc, talk in adult language to even as to babies and to small children is a great benefit. You know, one, our nieces and nephews, we talk pretty adult to them and, and thoughtfully to them. And I think that that's part of how they learn. So um, if there's any hook that I have put you on, David, I let you off. That's why Alexander is going to be super intelligent and either be president or Pope. Anyway. <laughs> so in this final section, Lewis returns the question of appreciative love. And he said that affection has need love and gift love components. But earlier he said that it's not an appreciative love. But this is, we've, we've hinted at this earlier. Having said that, he notes that there's something rather odd about affection. 
He says, it can rub along with the most unpromising people. Yet, oddly enough, this very fact means that it can, in the end, make appreciations possible, which, but for it, might have never existed. He says the very line that you quoted earlier, Andrew, we choose our friends and spouses. Uh, and he says that we do that not only for their various excellences, but for the particular kind of excellences which we personally prefer. And when I read this, I thought of Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, where he says, I'm a simple man. I like pretty dark haired women and breakfast food. Ron and I, very similar. <laughs> and scotch. <laughs> and scotch. <laughs> Uh, but he says, we may have chosen our friends or our spouses for their various merits based on our tastes. But he says, the especial glory of affection is that it can unite those who most emphatically, even comically, are not people who, if they had not found themselves put down by fate in the same household or community, would have had nothing to do with each other. And what happens is, as affection grows, our eyes begin to open. And he says, we begin getting beyond our own idiosyncrasies learning to appreciate the goodness or the intelligence in themselves, not merely goodness or intelligence flavored and served to suit our own palate. Mm -hmm. And having lots of friends doesn't prove that you have a wide appreciation of human excellence. Jack says that it makes as little sense as saying that you have a wide literary taste just because you like all of the books in your library. Well, you chose them, so they're going to be things that you like. He says for, for literary tastes, if you can go to the bargain bin at your local secondhand bookstore and find something to interest you, then you might have a little bit of a wider taste. Well, and this goes back to um, to something that he experienced with with um, Arthur Greaves. And Lewis liked a particular kind of scenery and weather. And Arthur just liked scenery and weather. So when it was raining, Jack would complain and, and Arthur would glory in it. Ah, oh, but I'm miserable, damp, and cold. Yes, isn't it glorious? You know, and and relish the you know revel in the quiddity of this miserableness and dampness, and this kind of idea of receiving whatever it is. And it reminds me of the Green Lady in Paralandra. Shall we not receive whatever it is that the Lord sends that that Maladil sends to us, right? And it's the the it's the attitude of um, uh, the the character on. The Hrasa, yeah, exactly. Shall I not receive what what Maladil, blessed be he, sends to me? It's this kind of saying yes to life and being indiscriminate. And that's where it starts to become like agape, like, like unconditional love. When we're gathered around the throne with every tribe and nation, we won't have much in common with them, except that they are part of our family. And embracing those who are part of our family, even the human family, I think can widen us as people and help us to understand the wideness of the grace and the love of God. I say and proclaim, but I don't know if I really believe that God loves everybody as much as he loves me, <laughs> or Americans, or people who love C.S. Lewis, you know, or the people in my family. But of course he must. And so I think affection encourages us to broaden uh, our acceptance of people regardless of, of what they bring to the table. I have the opposite problem, Andrew. I sometimes wonder if God loves me as much as he loves other people. I need to, I need to learn from you. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and to me as a as a future priest, that's the great struggle. The struggle to really accept that God loves us and then to respond to that incredible love by loving him in return and by loving everyone who comes my way. To me, that's the fountainhead and the juncture of everything. That's the cruciform nature of life, to receive God's love and to express the reception of that by loving him back and by loving others. And that's, I have that same struggle, Matt. We you just described my favorite, one of my favorite books, Henry Nouwen, The Return of the Prodigal Son. That is that journey mm. of the, the step one of The Return of the Prodigal Son is receiving the love of the father. And I love Rembrandt's painting that's on the front of it. I actually am ordering it for Christmas for myself, uh, a little canvassing yes. of it. And But the book really focuses on after that, once we've received that love and it transforms us, we're called to become the father for others mm -hmm. and to share that love. And I've just really, I find the prodigal son story, I don't, it's never hit me as much as it has maybe in the last six or 12 months. There's just so much wisdom in that chapter of Luke. It's just incredible. So mm -hmm. read that book, guys, and read Loved As I Am by Sister Miriam James. If you read Henry Nowen's Return of Prodigal Son and Sister Miriam James's Loved As I Am, 
your life won't be the same. <laughs> My wife, uh, her whole family have done a, a lot with the Myers-Briggs personality types. And she's fond of saying when she teaches, remember that Jesus is the center of all of the different personality types. And the closer that we get to him, the more of the different types we'll be able to embrace. And I think in the same way, the closer we get to Christ, the more we imitate him, the more that we will embody affection perfectly and not do it wrong. And the same thing with friendship and with Eros and with, uh, of course, divine love. And Andrew, we're, we're listeners, we're going to be recording our first uh, video happy hour in a ring session. We're not sure what we're going to call it yet, but we're going to do this afterwards. And Andrew, I want us to talk about this cruciform love a little bit. Well, that was in my retreat. Mm-hmm. I love that term. Uh, we can we can bring that. So mm-hmm. listeners, go check out our YouTube channel at some point in the future. David will know better when this is going to be released. It is a new thing we're doing. This is a plug right now for it. So looking at the time, we should probably wrap up today's episode. So I'm just going to end it by encouraging everyone to uh, think about affection this week. To, uh, as Lewis says, uh, have appreciation towards the cross-section of humanity whom you meet every day. And as he says, are they made for us? Thank God, no. They are themselves, <laughs> odder than you could have believed, and worth far more than we guessed. Ah, perfect. Wow, what a way to end. Worth far more than we guessed. Well done, David. Good ending. Mm. Well, there's the last call bell here at the Lamb and Flag. Thanks to all of our listeners, our Patreon supporters, and especially our top-tier supporters, my friend Bud, along with Shane and John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Monique and Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Jeff, Kelly, Chris, John, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. We thank God for you, especially in this week of Thanksgiving. If you'd like to be part of our video tribute to William O'Flaherty, and I heartily encourage you to do that. He is also a good friend for whom I have much affection. Please go to pintswithjack.com slash misquote. Also, please visit our revamped website, pintswithjack.com. If for no other reason, David just put up a talk I gave years ago at St. Teresa's Catholic Church in Sugarland, Texas, called Transformative Friendship, about the relationship between J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Last of all, we encourage you, please, to join us next time. When will we be going further up? And further in. Cheers. 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 <laughs>